Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another um, SACPA session. During this time of social and physical distancing, SACPA believes it's important to keep engaging with the public on the issues of the day, and in order to do so, we are very thankful for the continuing support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight, and the Lethbridge Herald. Today we have with us um, as speakers Dr. Melanie Thomas and Lisa Lambert on the topic of should people break COVID-19 social distancing rules, should those people be punished for breaking the rules. Melanie Thomas is an associate professor of, public, of uh, political science at the University of Calgary. Her research focuses on the causes and consequences of gender-based political inequalities in Canada and other post-industrial democracies. Lisa Lambert is a student of parliaments, loves to regale her family with tales of politics, procedure, and party structure. Um, welcome both to SACPA, and um, we look forward to your talk. Well, thank you very much, Annalise. I'll get started, and if you can start um, and just show the, the first title slide, maybe. Um, I wanted to introduce this in terms of uh, what we were thinking when we asked this question. A couple of months ago, just as the uh, COVID was starting and um, the physical distancing was beginning and that kind of thing, um, both Melanie and I saw a, a number of people asking the question, why won't people just follow the rules? The rules are there. Why won't they follow them? They should be punished. And we wanted to think about that in terms of um, some of the political science literature. So uh, if you can go to the second slide. Um, we went back to um, one of the earliest pieces on collective action, which was um, by Olson. And Olson's uh, sentence here uh, really points to a, se an, a sense that individuals cannot work together for the collective good. Um, Annalise, if you can flip to the next um, one. But we knew that that was actually not true. It doesn't make sense that people cannot work together. We actually have many pieces of evidence that people do work together collectively um, for their own good, that the um, old ideas of homo economicus or the 100% rational, um, always focused on himself kind of person is not who most of us are. And many people are prepared to work together, inconvenience themselves and do things for the greater good. I think of blood donors, I think of people donating um, to people on, uh, on the street who are homeless and all of the work that goes into food banks and all of that kind of work is selfless work so we know people can do things together we wanted to think about how to apply that to the covid situation so we turned to our um one of our favorite political scientists eleanor ostrom and it's the next slide um and eleanor uh won the nobel prize she was the first woman to win the nobel prize in economic sciences and she studied how it is that ordinary people can create rules and institutions um and to manage common pool resources or shared resources. So we wanted to apply her work to the COVID example, and Melanie's going to talk about what our argument was. Okay, so um, if you could go to the next slide, we've got um, four types of people, and we, we published this with uh, the CBC as an opinion piece related to COVID. And I want to 
draw your attention to the top left corner, the, the willing participants, because if you think back to those first reactions to COVID, the idea that, as Lisa said, we were wanting to react to people who were saying, why can't people, some people just follow the rules? Well, to back up, that means that the first bunch of people are people who are actually following the rules. So right out of the gate, we're breaking this idea that everybody is this purely individualistic, uh, myopic actor that's only interested in themselves. Most people are actually willing to participate in uh, something that works together for the common good. So these are the willing participants. What willing participants need in a context like COVID, but in other contexts as well, is a clear a clear argument, like a clear case to be made for why they should do something. So when we, when most people heard you need to wash your hands because this is a great way um, to kill this virus, or you need to stay two meters apart, or you have to stay home uh, and like not go outside for uh, anything other than the absolute bare minimum essentials, uh, you need to self-isolate for 14 days if you come into contact, all of these things that are actually really quite profoundly inconvenient, most people if given clear communication about why we need to do it, are prepared to be willing participants, uh, even if it really inconveniences themselves. And so in our CBC piece, uh, we said that about two thirds of people um, would be like this. And the one, of the one caveat I wanna put on that that's come with some of the reactions that we've had afterwards is that I think that's maximal, right? So you've got people really need clear, clear, crystal clear communication about why they're doing uh, what they're doing or why they're being asked to do uh, these sorts of things. And when they've got that, you can get up to two thirds saying, yes, I'm in, that's great. Now, the second bit, um, if you move over to the top right, this these are the rational egoists. And this is this is the homo economist. This is the classic thing that where previous research prior to Ostrom would have said, this is everybody. Um, Ostrom says this is actually like a small, it's a not insignificant minority of folks. It's important to know that they're a minority, um, but they're still present in reasonably large numbers. We estimate them to be about one in five or so, about 20%. Uh, and rational egoists, um, they're the ones that would need to, they're not going to be easily uh, persuaded to inconvenience themselves. So this idea of you don't wear a mask for you, wear it for other people, um, don't stay home for you, do it for other people. This isn't going to work for this particular group of folks. What does work for them, though, is the idea that it's in their short-term self-interest to follow the rules. And so some arguments that work for rational egoists would be the, you don't want to get this virus, it's very nasty, and it will be very bad for you. Uh, so stay at home, stay away from people, wash your hands. Uh, this worked, I think, in early days as well. But um, for uh, some folks, and we'll get into this a little bit later, why some people might be less willing to necessarily buy that particular narrative. This is where sanctions coming in also helps. So like in the city of Calgary, where I'm based, uh, it's a $1,200 fine if you are outside and not maintaining physical distancing. I don't think they've actually levied the fine, but it's worth noting that I know exactly how much it is. I don't know if this is me being Dutch and not wanting to pay a $1,200 fine, but I actually did take <laughs> tape measures out when we when I met up with a friend being like, we need to stay this far away. I'm not getting one of these tickets. So you can see, like, I don't think I'm a rational egoist. I would have done it otherwise. But the presence of the sanction there uh, is really important to get. They're just like, okay, so it's not in my interest to break this rule uh, because the sanction is so high or the potential sanction is so high. And one of the reasons why having those sanctions is really important is because egoists behaving in a way that's 
good for them and not necessarily good for everybody else can make willing participants feel like idiots for following the rules. So if you're a willing participant and you've been persuaded that we need to follow the rules, all these other sorts of things, and you're inconvenienced and nobody's enjoying some parts of these things, and if you see somebody just flagrantly violating the rules without any kind of sanction or without any problem, you'll be like, well, I'm, I'm a chump. Why am I? Why am I following the rules? Like, look at them. So there is something about sanctioning people who won't, the presence of the rules and then actually seeing the sanction keeps willing participants persuaded that this is actually, they're actually doing, um, that to kind of like stay with the kind of collective action course. Um, the last two groups of people, so these are the bottom two quadrants, uh, are, I think they're definitely the smallest in numbers and they're also sometimes the most perplexing. Uh, the, I think the easiest to understand would be the altruists. These are the people who are sewing massive numbers of masks for other people for free. Uh, an altruist basically just needs to be given, uh, like space to be able to help everybody, uh, because they're the ones that are willing to put themselves out. Uh, and I don't think they would see it as put themselves out. They just, they're the helpers. They're like, they're the Mr. Rogers, like find the helper. If you're ever in trouble, you want to find an altruist. These are, these are the folks who are, who are there, who will like, no matter what the cost to them, they are, they are there to help. Um, the punishers, I think, uh, down there in the bottom right are, I think for me, the most perplexing. And in terms of a public policy response, I actually think that these are some of the hardest people to figure out how to work with as well. We identified them through looking at research that Ostrom and others had done, in lab experiments, punishers are actually prepared to spend their own money to punish egoists for breaking the rules. So they're just like, I will literally take a cost to punish you, you person who hasn't followed the rules. And so you, like, it's vindictive. And so you can see that this is it's like academically, it's fascinating, but in terms of public policy, this has potential to be really corrosive. And so one of the arguments that we make is that if you want to have a complete public policy response, you have to take all of these different motivations into account. And that includes things like the punishers. So willing participants need crystal clear information uh, and they need that regularly and they need a good reason to follow the rules and if they've got it, they'll follow. But this isn't everyone. Egoists need, though, the presence of those sanctions or things that are more selfishly motivated, I think for lack of a better term, to actually follow the rules. But punishers, if they're not, you need to think carefully about uh, how to integrate them. So Either I think punishers might be satisfied if they see sanctions being applied, so it's like shouting frowder through the news. But what I worry about, uh, and like this came, we'll talk about this in a moment. What came up is that we had initially said, well, snitch lines are maybe not such a bad thing, um, because otherwise punishers might go vigilante and like do this quite independent or outside of the state, and that could be very bad. Um, and so the idea that maybe if you see somebody breaking the rules, we could understand why. Uh, a punisher would, or somebody who's got that kind of motivation, would be open and receptive to that, and that might inspire them to follow the rules a little bit more. Um, but if you go to the next slide, you can see that we've had some interesting reactions to to this particular piece that has, I don't know if it's changed the way that we think about this, but it certainly has add, added some nuance that didn't come through in the initial piece, for sure. So yeah. Lisa, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the first reactions that we got uh, was the sort of, I've called it the, you're great, this explains everything about everything, um, which um, 
meant that Melanie and I spent uh, a couple of days after the opinion piece came out just doing a lot of media. We had requests uh, everywhere from TVO to BBC, um, uh, syndicated CBC radio, all over the place, wanted to talk to us because they felt like this really explained things. And one of the questions that I would often get asked was, well, which one of these people are you? And I found it a difficult question and one I didn't really want to answer either um, because I don't think that it's entirely about cataloging people as much as it is understanding motivations. And I think Mm -hmm. Melanie has done a really good job of explaining that, that when we approach public policy, we have to understand people's motivations and what they may be reacting to. And so I don't think that we do explain everything about everything, but we do uh, point to some concerns that we may want to have as we create public policy, such that um, each person, each type of motivation um, gets responded to. In the old style of economic theory and political approaches to these items, everyone was seen as only driven by rational self-interest. And if you're only driven by rational self-interest, then you must be punished or financially like financially punished or financially rewarded for doing something because otherwise you wouldn't do it but because we rejected that idea and ostrom rejected that idea that that's how everyone behaves we have to see that um that there are uh public policy responses that can incorporate the willing participants the punishers and in some way, the altruists, public policy can't really deal with altruists. We don't know how to deal with people who want to give away their kidneys, right? We just don't know what to do with these people. Um, But the other three motivations need to be addressed in public policy. So we didn't explain everything about everything. Um, Maybe I'll turn it over to Melanie for the authoritarian state one, um, because I know uh, she had to deal with this. People saying that we were... um, just we just love snitch lines and that we're just yeah this was my I was really frustrated with this particular reaction because at the same time there were uh I won't name names but there were a series of columns that had come out um from people who I think I have a hypothesis people got sanctioned um to, aren't used to it uh, at all uh and as a result got very upset that somebody told them that they did something bad like a slap on the wrist or something or like somebody said something to them in a way that made them feel uncomfortable in a social context. And so with a national platform, there is this idea that um, snitch lines are terrible. They're corrosive to democracy. Uh, It's like having the Stasi. Uh, This is just super authoritarian. It's super coercive. We don't want to like get the state to turn people into uh, like people who are just narking out on their neighbors all the time. And I think this is where we need to have a little bit more of a empirical approach where you step back a little bit, because when you go back to the idea that everybody's a rational, self-interested, um, myopic, short-term thinking actor, like the stuff that Austin was reacting against, you don't have collective goods unless you coerce people into having them. And so 
what Ostrom is working on is how you can actually use cooperation and to be able to get this kind of, to solve the collective action problem, to actually, so that we can all work together. And she very elegantly shows that if you just give people clear information about why they should be doing something. And in Ostrom's work too, uh, which isn't relevant to public health, um, but if you're wanting to expand this to other contexts, how decisions about this stuff gets made matters. And we can maybe talk about that in the Q&A if you want. But the whole point is to minimize authoritarianism. The whole point is to minimize coercion. And so, I mean, when... Uh, we noted that the people who are just like, this is authoritarian and a counter to democracy and all very bad. We noticed that these came from people who typically aren't policed. And so one of the things I would be very candid about that we, and I, we didn't really have time to talk about this in the original piece, but I think it might merit its own separate set of considerations is that a context like a crisis like this is going to exacerbate existing hierarchies and problems. And so there's good research from the United States, and I think I wouldn't be surprised if we could see this in Canada too, where the people who are going to be policed the most about breaking the rules or following the rules are going to be people who are already disproportionately policed. So in Canada, this would be Indigenous peoples, this would be the poor, this would be uh, Black folks in the U.S. Uh, and so just because we have a public health context and just because we are making the argument that you have to take diverse motivations into account in terms of public policy, this doesn't make any of this other stuff go away. It, in some cases, shines a light on it. But one of the reactions that we had noticed that the people who are just like, you just want an authoritarian state are people who like are not policed to the extent that other folks are policed. And we want to go back to this idea that through clear communication, through minimal bits of coercion, you can actually do this in a way that is consistent with democracy. Um, because it highlights other things that are inconsistent with democracy in our society, it does not mean that doing this in terms of public policy is authoritarian. It means that we've got, you still have to do the work on all of the other issues, right? One of the other things I noticed is that um, competition between uh, the new social norms that we were trying to make around COVID, the physical distancing in particular, uh, and especially in public spaces, how uh, those new social norms are not particularly resilient to older ones. And these, I think the authoritarian state and the, for me, this kind of competition between other social norms, um, they really dovetail nicely together because, again, I'm a, I am like to run. I live in downtown Calgary, so I'm right by the river path system where, uh, at least where I live, it's very easy for people if they're actually using the path in a way that is considerate to the two-meter rule or the six-foot rule. Uh, everybody can get around each other easily. Um, sometimes it might mean like waiting and not necessarily passing and kind of like modifying your workout for somebody else because none of us are going to be racing anytime soon. All of us are like, maybe you should just slow down and enjoy <laughs> instead of like doing interval workouts, leaving all of that aside. One of the things I noticed is that when I would encounter somebody, a stranger who was very clearly not following these rules, I would have a very clear narrative in my head about what I would want to say. Um, but I, there were instances where I didn't because I didn't feel safe to say something. Uh, and this would be a case where, because I'm a woman, there were men where it was just like, I don't know what his reaction is going to be. But people would re typically react badly to being called out for being the jerk. Like nobody wants to be the jerk in a context, right? And so being like a, hey, could you, like, you need to be over four feet you're only giving me two feet of space so with men with women i like i had these narratives and i just it was interesting how i was like physically unable to actually say the covid19 social norms in the context of the norms of like self-protection 
uh, or uh, this idea of just being nice, things along these lines. And so this is one of these things where it creates an interesting policy problem. And I think, uh, like, I haven't heard any kind of public health official or any kind of, like, policy response about how to deal with these competing social norms except for like the repetition of the message where like you need to do this now and so there's kind of an expectation but I think it's worth noting that if we're trying to build a new social norm and it's going to come into conflict with existing sorts of things as well. Um, The other thing I wanted to talk about too is uh, how this all gets politicized Um, and so one of the things that we came up in the context of some of the media that we've been asked to do, particularly if we were speaking to uh, an American audience, say, uh, versus a Canadian audience, was how um, there were different expectations about where the information should come from. And one of the things that we had noticed is that you can see this differently across the federal government and the provinces, but then also across some provinces too, about whether or not the uh, lead for the press conferences for this clear information that is like the linchpin for all of these policies, if it's coming from a chief medical officer, in which case it is depoliticized, um, or if it's coming from a politician. And so in the United States, uh, you can see these sorts of things where there's competition between the president and some governors, notably the governor of New York, and it is a highly charged, highly politicized kind of context. Um, if you look at British Columbia, well, actually, say if you look federally, I should say um, Dr. Tam, as the federal chief medical officer of health, is doing her own sort of thing, while the prime minister is doing his entirely different sort of thing. So they're they're different. So the the political content is coming completely independent from the chief medical officer of health. Um, British Columbia, you've got a different case where the lead is very much their chief medical officer of health, and the minister of health is very much there in the background as a supporting role, and that this has been consistent throughout. Now, you don't have to pay that much attention to what's going on in Alberta to know that we've seen some pretty serious shifts about this, where um, initially there was a lot of groundswell of support for Dr. Gina Hinshaw, our chief medical officer of health, uh, and what we've noticed over time is that this has become increasingly politicized, where political actors are actually um, wanting to, I guess, like there are certain different interpretations you could have where at sometimes they start to look a lot more like, say, the governor of New York taking the lead on these sorts of things. Um, at other times, you what's interesting is that, I mean, it used to be that um, Dr. Hinshaw started all of those press conferences, and now she plays very much a supporting role to whichever political actors, either the premier, uh, the minister of health, or other cabinet ministers. Um, so she's very much kind of seen to be in that supporting role to the politicians, as opposed to, say, Br- British Columbia, where you've got it in reverse, where it's the medical officer that's the lead, and the politicians and cabinet are in a supportive role. I can see arguments for this um So I'm not going to pass judgment about whether or not one way is better or another, in part because um, ultimately it's going to be the political actors that have to face accountability and responsibility for the choices that they make on the advice of the chief medical officers. Uh, And I think that's really important to bear in mind. But the other thing that I would note is that when I observe changes to how those political actors are coming in, I wonder about the political motivations for this, right? So if you've got groundswells of support and a lot of like warm and af- affection for the chief medical officer of health in a crisis, and then a politician was like, great, I'm going to make sure that I'm with her all the time. Uh, 
most of the chief medical officers are women. Um, so one of the things I would note is that the question I would ask is, is a politician trying to usurp the goodwill or to politicize the goodwill from the chief medical officer of health so that that then comes onto them? I don't think this is ever particularly successful. And I actually don't think that politicians need to do this based on rally around the flag kind of effects in a crisis and you know how people will want to reward incumbents in a crisis and want to depoliticize things in generally. I think this kind of isn't necessary, but it is something that we've observed as well. Um, Lisa, I'll turn it over to you for our last note. Yeah, absolutely. So the last kind of reaction we've seen is actually what um, leads us into some of our concerns for risk in the future. And that is the um, performance nature of following some of these rules. So um, in the beginning, we noticed that there was, uh, if you think back to the um, young people uh, going to the beaches in Florida, saying like, I, I refuse to, you know, socially distance, I've waited, you know, months for this holiday, um, sort of performing uh, their rejection of the, the collective need. Um, I think where we're going to start seeing this in the future is going to be around mask wearing. And I'm a bit worried that people will um, politicize their the uh, wearing of a mask and perform their um, uh, political leanings. So uh, if we if we can flip to the next uh, screen, um, next slide. Yesterday, Prime Minister Trudeau appeared at the uh, Parliament wearing a uh, very plain looking mask, a black mask. And uh, as the um, Chief Medical Officer of Health for the Canada noted yesterday, we, we should all be wearing masks. So this is another of the topics that we need to consider beyond social distancing is will people do this for the collective good? It's really not about yourself when you're wearing a mask. It really is about protecting other people. So this is very much a test of uh, our willingness to conform for the collective. Um, will people be willing to do it? I'm a bit concerned that people may think that this is something they should choose to do based on their um, on their political beliefs. So, you know, I I am a liberal, so I will wear a, a mask, or I am not a liberal, so I refuse to wear a mask. Something like that. Um, we will have some ongoing challenges, and as the uh, weather improves, people will also want to spend more time. Uh, outside and we may need to um, communicate continually about the personal risks and the challenges to the system um, that may um, increase and then um, Melanie do you want to wrap up on some of the issues around risk aversion and, and some yeah. of our concerns there yeah, so just to echo some of the things that Lisa had said, we have really good research in political science about how people integrate new information and new issues into their pre-existing belief systems. And so this is why it's really important and problematic that we see this breaking or that we see reactions to COVID falling along partisan lines, particularly in the United States. And I think if there's if we're seeing it in the United States, we're going to have spillover in Canada as well. Uh, and then you can also see the kind of like wanting to use some existing political issues as grounds uh, using COVID as trying to like integrate into those existing political 
spats effectively. And so what this means is that people, if they, um, so somebody who's a very strong Republican and a supporter of the president, Donald Trump, um, the, they're much more likely to actually be infected because they are less likely to have followed the rules because they just reject the idea. So they're following an opinion leader. And so what, what they're doing is they're integrating information about this current crisis as a new issue into their existing belief systems. Uh, and so this is where depoliticizing these issues is really important. And one of the things I'm noticing is that a lot of actors are not doing this. And so I, I'm worried about how, how mm -hmm. that's all going to go. Um, one of the things, if to go back to the beginning, the key thing for most people is to have really crystal clear communication about what we're doing and why. My biggest worry about the opening is that um, the we're getting conflicting messages. So before where we would have said, we don't know how much, how badly this is going to tax our health system, but we know that we need to not tax it too much. So this is why people are like, great, I'll stay home. We're going to be two meters apart from everyone, all these other sorts of things. Now we're getting the messaging where it's effectively, the risk is still there, but the health system is not taxed, which means that we can deal with more people getting infected. And so I think a rational egoist, as well as a bunch of other people would say, so what you're saying is that I can infect myself. This is this seems like a bad idea. And so what you see here are these kind of disconnects or tensions in what people had integrated and how they were first thinking about COVID. And then if we're getting contradictory information, what this is going to get is not only greater confusion, but I think uh, lower compliance with the rules in both directions. So some people are going to be risk averse. So when we talk about risk aversion, people are going to say, I don't trust that I'm safe. Even if you tell me that I'm safe doing things that I used to do, I don't trust you and I don't believe it anymore. So there's that on one hand. Uh, and then there's also this idea where we're getting conflicting information. So I've got friends with kids where they had wanted to, uh, their kids would have been signed up for day camps in the summer. And so they're being told, well, they can go to a day camp with physical distancing. And if you've spent any time with a kid under 12, like, or maybe under 10, you'll know that like, this is not... <laughs> This is not really going to happen in most contexts, or it needs like serious monitoring for this to happen. And so they're saying, well, the kids are going to break physical distancing if they're at the day camp. So we can do that, but we can't have a play date in our backyard. And I guess you can if you've got like two families that are getting together. So I can see confusion is increasing. I don't know if it's spiraling out of control, but I can definitely see that people are getting increasingly confused about like where the rules are. The, the clarity of communication has really started to deteriorate. And for me, this is the, if this all rests on very clear communication, as we lose that clarity, this is where we're going to, this is, this is my greatest fear for, or worry for how these policies are going to proceed in the future. Yeah, exactly, Melanie. If we, uh, the willing participants need the clear information. The rational egoists need the rules and the fines attached mm -hmm. to them. The punishers need to see that um, the egoists are being punished and they need to potentially be able to do that through a snitch line or something else. And the altruists are going to be out there donating things and painting rocks and being beautiful people. Um, yes. But <laughs> public policy needs to address all of these different motivations uh, in order to accomplish what we need to accomplish as a community, as a collective. And we're not doomed. There is an, a way out, but we just need to follow it. Good. Okay. Thank, thank you so much, both of you, for um, participating and for this excellent talk. Um, we already have quite a few questions in the queue, so if you're okay with me just 
jumping right in and asking the questions. Um, right now, um, Melanie, you're up on the screen, just so you know. Okay. Um, we have a question from Timothy, who is the Lethbridge Herald uh, reporter. Have you found the recommendations by health, by public health officers contradictory or frustrating in its inconsistencies? An example from Alberta, our chief medical officer banned golf, others banned park use. So, uh, those are the inconsistencies I find frustrating. Um, the caveat that I would put on this is that because this is a novel virus, when public health officials say, we actually don't know, they mean it. And so in that sense, like early on, I think we got more clarity where people would say, we don't know, so we're going to be extremely cautious. Uh, where I can see inconsistencies is on this other end about what gets privileged in terms of reopening and what doesn't. And so uh, I remember having a conversation with a colleague where when Alberta first staged its plan where um, things like reflexology uh, and outdoor gun ranges were explicitly mentioned, but things like the courts and access to justice weren't. And I mean, the friend I was chatting with was a lawyer and she said, I understand that we have um, some agency that maybe other groups don't, but like to just not mention this at all seems particularly odd. Um, so in that sense, like I think for me, what would make the inconsistencies um, completely acceptable would be this open and frank acknowledgement of like, we don't know what we don't know yet. And so this is why we're, this is why we're giving these particular kinds of reactions. But this is also my frustration on this other end where um, I am like, where it's not clear why some activities where they'll just say, well, you just need to maintain the two meters, but we can know that folks probably aren't going to do that. Um, why some of that stuff is allowed, but other stuff isn't, right? And so in that sense, um, I would circle back to this idea that we have existing hierarchies and existing priorities, and we're starting to see those coming through in the opening up. And so what gets prioritized are things that, it's it's not a, like, the what gets prioritized tells you quite a lot about, um, I think, government priorities. And this is the other thing I would point out is that uh, ultimately, the decisions do not rest with chief medical officers. They can only give advice. Um, the ultimate decision rests with cabinet, with government, with those political actors. And so uh, if I was going to locate, uh, I have two frustrations. I locate the frustration about the lack of clarity and information with chief medical officers of health for some of this stuff in terms of the opening. Um, I think they did a much better job earlier on, and I am becoming increasingly frustrated with how that clarity is disintegrating. But then when it comes to what gets open and what doesn't, I think the most appropriate place to locate the responsibility and the accountability for that is with the political people who's ultimately correct, ultimately make the decision. Uh, and in that sense, it speaks volumes to government priorities. Lisa, do you want to comment or do you want to move to the next no, question? No, no, she, she nailed that. Why would, I, don't wanna, I don't need to add a thing. <laughs> next question, please. Okay, the next question comes from Cliff Peterson. Regarding rational egoists and the fact that they've, they have probably always existed, is it fair to say that their actions have been magnified through the use of social media? Who would like to take that question? 
Oh, I can take that one. Um, yeah, the rational egoist sometimes gets a bad rap. Um, sometimes people have called them selfish and things like that. Um, I think it's important in the in the literature to look back on it that traditional economic theory thought we were all like this. They thought we all behaved in this way in which we just made these sort of rational, self-interested decisions. Um, and really, Ostrom said, um, and other behavioral economists that worked along with her, Bowles and Thaler and ones like that, that it's it's not that way, that most people want to work um, together, most people want to work collectively. So um, the rational egoist may not be, um, uh, may be able to use social media, I, I see what you mean, Knut, with it. They may be able to use social media to express themselves a little bit more, um, but but they still are a minority of the population. The good news that we're trying to bring to people is that most people are not that way. Most people want to work collectively and want to um, be together and are not self-interested. So if 80% of us are not self-interested, then those 20% can't be overlooked entirely, but we don't need to pay a great deal of attention to them. And we can maybe just block them on Facebook or something like that. The thing I would add is that I think that social media does amplify one of these four types, um, in particular in a way that I think is problematic, and that's the punishers. And yeah. so where, if punishers don't feel as though they've got, uh, that they're seeing enough adequate sanctions or that they're not seeing the sanctions applied, uh, social media, I think, disproportionately uh, distorts the number of punishers that are there and how this is actually coloring, how people look at this. And so one of the most interesting things I've seen are, have been um, critiques of some stuff that have been posted on social media, like photos in places like Brooklyn, like basically photos everywhere, of uh, where they're clearly like the, the way that the angle that the photo is being taken at is minimizing the fact that people are actually probably six feet away from each other, right? So I've seen beaches in Vancouver, I've seen parks in Brooklyn, um, Montreal had an awful lot of this, though admittedly Montreal had a much more um, severe outbreak than some other places as well, where people are just kind of like the like, and it's like, look at these, look at these insert expletive here, um, who aren't following the rules. And so I see this as part of punishers being vigilantes or punishers being frustrated. And this is why yeah. I think it's very important to, to note that like taking that motivation into account in terms of public policy is a way to like, undercut this kind of really negative kinds of social sanctions that you can see. And we didn't kind of address on this, uh, which is my fault on the last slide where we're talking about the us versus them, but some of the most disturbing stuff I've seen in social media is um, race-based violence as a result of people who are misinformed um, and racist, where they're attacking people from, from Asian backgrounds uh, because they want to say that uh, due to like completely racist motivations. This is the stuff where, I mean, even though that uh, this is a really small proportion of people, I think that the negative effects of them acting on these motivations are bad enough that they do merit much more consideration uh, and much more careful consideration um, than say the egoist. Everybody likes to focus on the egoist. Nobody likes somebody who they think is selfish, I guess. But um, for me, it's the, the punishers are, the, are the, the trickiest nut to crack on this one. Um, in part because, I think primarily because when you add 
all of the other social sorts of like things that we have in society and then social media as this kind of like unfiltered way of communicating uh it it exacerbates something that um i think is i don't want to say that punishers are bad but i i can see like negative like really negative outcomes of people acting on that motivation. Um, and some of it could be unintended. I think some of it totally is intended, but like what we need to avoid devolving into is this like us versus them. And then that, cause that will give punishers more space or give the, that motivation more space um, to do really awful things. Like this would be the idea of like, if we're ever allowed to drive into BC again with Alberta plates, the uh, like BC will like the us versus them as the like, well, there were more cases in Alberta, which means that you're the risk if you're coming into our space. Um, but you can like, there's any number of these sorts of things where the us versus them gets really corrosive, but social media amplifies the, um, that particular motivation, I think much more than say the egoist. Okay. Our next question is from, Tom Moffat, I'm not sure if it's a question or um, a comment. Would I trust anything Kennedy, Kenny tells me or Trump? Sorry, I lost the question. Did I, I don't know if Melanie heard it. I, it just yeah. cut out on me. So this oh. is the, I think if I could generalize it, this would be the idea of the consequences of this being politicized. So if you don't trust a political leader, um, for other reasons, then why would you trust them when they're speaking about a public health issue? Uh, and for me, this is the, so this is the idea of like, what would I trust anything that Kenny says on this? Or would I trust anything that Trump says on this? And I mean, I think Trump in particular is very difficult because he lies constantly. Uh, and this is demonstrated over and over and over, uh, anything along these lines. And so I can understand how reasonable people um, would potentially not trust somebody who's like so like often demonstrated to be a liar. But this, this is getting to the other thing about political like political polarization and the performance of politics through something like COVID. And so if we're looking at um, political polarization, its hallmark is that uh, it's this us versus them dynamic uh, where, um, actual facts and information and preferences don't matter. What matters is that you know your team and you're just out to beat the other team, uh, regardless of what they're saying or what they're doing. Uh, and so in this context, people will actually take policies or costs or outcomes that are actually really damaging to them. But like, that's not the point. The point isn't those outcomes. The point is beating the other team. And so if I were to say in Alberta and like, so the United States is very much a polarized context where um, it, people who are reasonable and sensible, who also happen to be Republicans um, are prepared to support somebody who is like the opposite of reasonable and sensible and actually doing any kind of good stuff about this because they want Republicans to win. And so the question is whether or not Canada has this kind of politics. And I think it is, has developed quite rapidly over the past decade or so. Uh, and I think in Alberta in particular, um, it is, we very much have this. And we hear messaging like this from the premier where um, he, like it goes hand in hand with an unwillingness to acknowledge that there have been mistakes that have been made or that policy directions are inappropriate. Uh, or that somebody who has been tasked with running a particular policy domain uh, is not up to the job. 
uh, and this is very, I'm referring to the Minister of Health, and I've like I've written in other spaces, just myself, I don't want to put Lisa's name on this inappropriately and extend this to her, but this is the idea that the Minister of Health in Alberta has behaved personally in a manner that um, by every systematic indicator or argument or bit of evidence that we have from Westminster parliamentary system should have been required to resign um, for his conduct. Uh, and so in this context, I can understand why people like might not trust a political leader or a group of leaders who are saying um, our number one goal is making sure that it's about us, that we win and that we want to fight against them, whatever that them is. Like that polarization dynamic is is really, really problematic. But for us, like our argument would be not like those particular political actors are bad, but it's a how are we going to avoid this dynamic in the context of public health? Because it's crucial that we avoid this dynamic in the context of public health. And so strategies could be to find people that everybody trusts, independent of their, uh, like across partisan lines. And this would be things like a chief medical officer of health is a really good um, example of this. Uh, but like I, I can see other ways of, of doing this as well. Yeah, and I agree with you, uh, Mel, and I think in when we move to the context of masks, I think the way that it has to be is Trudeau needs to show up with a mask on, but so does every other member of parliament. And yes. I think if all members of parliament are doing it and demonstrating that masks are important, then I think it becomes more acceptable. The problem will be if Trudeau shows up with one and Sheer doesn't mm -hmm. and says, no, no, I, I refuse to wear it or something like that. Then we've got people um, who will begin to perform their partisanship by either wearing or not wearing. And this is the Liliana Mason work that we yeah. both appreciate too, which says, you know, people's policy preferences are being driven um, first then by their partisan behavior. So it, the example she uses is people uh, in the States will say, I'm a Republican, therefore I love to have a gun. Yeah, they're not saying I love to have a gun, so therefore I am a Republican. It's that the part that the partisanship is driving the policy preference. That's my concern for um, for Canada is that if we move towards something where um, I wear a mask, you know, because I'm a liberal, that's a problem. That's where we yeah. where we dive. Um, yeah, diverge. And I mean, I would be the first to critique Canada as not being as nice as what the trope suggests that we are. But this would be a context where I would say it's crucial for people across every single partisan line to use that stereotype to say we are good, nice people and we are really great to our neighbors, which is why we all wear masks. Because if you think about it in right. other contexts, like so places like Japan, places like China, um, places where there is a the cultural norm or the social norm of like it is your individual responsibility to make sure that you look out for other people where it's 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 different but it's much more um integrated uh this is where you see mask wearing on a regular basis where people will say i have a cold and so i don't want to make anybody else sick so because i am a good member of society i'm putting a mask on i really wish this would happen every fall semester when i teach a <laughs> seminar class because I can always see the cold going around and I'm just kind of like I'm the last person to get this like I can yeah. I can always mark the moment yeah. of the fall term where I get whatever um nasty cold virus uh, goes around that sort of thing but like I have colleagues where they've done um uh, academic placements in countries like Japan where they have asked their students like I see you wearing a mask like I, we don't see this in Canada typically what's this about and they say it's because this is polite because I am sick 
I am protecting everybody else from like whatever thing I've got. And so when I feel better, I'll take the mask off. Um, in Canada, we could use our like that stereotype of us. Like I say, I don't agree that it's, you know, as robust as what people might think it is, but we should use it to be able to actually try to yeah. build up this social norm. And social norms change. That's the yeah. other the other good news. I mean, uh, the advantage of being as incredibly old as I am, Melanie, is that uh, I have seen this happen many times, right? I recall um, people smoking in elevators, if you can imagine. Now, if somebody lit up a cigarette inside a building anymore, people would lose their minds. Yeah. They certainly wouldn't be able to do it in an elevator. And so we can change social norms. And one of the ways we change them um, is through public policy decisions. We could go on and on, Annalise. You should really ask could. another question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, our next question comes from Mark Goodall. What can you say about the deniers, hoaxers, and conspiracy theorists slash believers? I saw a good data on this the other day. Yeah. Uh, literally yesterday. So, uh, it was a study that came out of Carleton and it was specifically about Canadians and how Canadians perceive, like how many of them actually believe they were looking at four myths about COVID-19 uh, and misinformation uh, and whether or not people actually thought that they were good at sorting out false information from correct information. So, so uh, when I say misinformation, what I mean are uh, people who... Uh, believe incorrect information as if it is true. Uh, and then also misinformation uh, is this idea that um, uh, people might unwittingly uh, share false information without realizing it. Disinformation is like deliberately misleading people um, for like some kind of political strategy. So the highlights of this particular study is basically one in four to one in five Canadians buy uh, a total hoax about COVID-19, uh, but um, nearly, like almost one in, uh, or six in 10, so like almost two thirds, uh, think that they're really good at sorting out misinformation from, like correcting from facts from not facts. Uh, and this is where I think people are actually bad at this, but this goes back to the partisanship stuff as well. And so there's a number of people that think that the anti-malarial drug that Trump is taking is actually like protective against COVID-19 and it's, we don't know, like I, there are randomized control trials, but uh, we don't know about this. Uh, and so like the people who'd be more likely to believe that might be grasping at it because of political reasons. I think the other reasons why people might be like grasping at what sounds like a conspiracy theory is out of a desire to make the reaction, to make sense of what seems to be really random. And so some of this can be like, I don't want to, some of this might seem more nefarious um, or problematic because it's partisan and politicized and all these other sorts of things. But some of it, I think, is like merits a lot of compassion where people are struggling with things that are difficult and they just want to try to make some kind of sense of it. And the idea that it's random is really disorienting. Um, or the idea that we just don't know, uh, like, so it's maybe not random, but like, we just don't know what we don't know yet. And as we get more information, we can update. But in, in the meantime, the lack of certainty, I think, is really disorienting for people. And so I can understand the grasping at maybe it's this, maybe it's this. If I get it, maybe I can do this, things along those lines. Yeah, that's a great answer. I know we have many questions, so I'm going to let Annalise uh, ask another one. But I could go on about yeah. conspiracy theorists forever. Oh, <laughs> love it. Okay. Our next question is from uh, Henning Mundell, and it's for Melanie. Among your four groups, there was the rational egoists. 
may we need to also consider irrational egoists and possibly additional groups. I'm actually going to give that one to Lisa because Lisa knows um, uh, how Ostrom has applied this in more diverse contexts better than I do. So sorry, Henning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, so the rational egoist. Um, Ostrom wasn't making uh, any claims, um, you know, about irrational egoists or anything like that. Um, I think she probably would have said uh, she would have been very generous uh, to people, I think. Uh, she was a very generous person. And I think she would have been very generous and said that uh, most people are um, trying to do their best. And so the rational egoist just has a different motivation. So for some people, it may look irrational, but it's really just their motivation. And uh, traditional economic theory said we were all like this. So the fact that we're, uh, we don't all behave this way um, is, is just uh, something that we're beginning to understand and learn about. Um, a couple of the most recent Nobel uh, Prize winners in economics have all been around behavioral economics. And so if you want to read more about this, I'd uh, direct you to Richard Thaler, very accessible um, kind of work um, and uh, can start to explain a lot more about the rational egoist. So the I hope only that, thing, yeah, yeah, the only thing I would add to that is the, I, this is, so somebody's irrational um, maybe because they're imputing uh, holes in information. So they have questions and they don't have clear answers because the people who they are looking to to give them that clear and complete information are not actually doing their jobs or not doing their jobs as well as mm -hmm. what they need to. And so things that look like irrationality could just be people operating on incomplete information and trying to fill in the holes. We do this all of the time. The human brain does this all of the time. And so if we want to avoid this or minimize it, I would say I would go back to repeating the importance of complete, clear information. Yeah. Good point. Okay. Our next question comes from Tad Mitsui. Please comment on racism and misogyny. Yeah, Melanie has started um, to discuss this a little bit around the um, anti-Asian reactions. Um, to COVID and uh, very concerning. I think though what we said um, as part of the reaction is that some of the social norms that have been there uh, for a long time around sexism and racism um, are not going away with COVID and they're probably mm -hmm. being exacerbated. I think Mel, you probably wanna add a little bit more to that. Yeah, so uh one of the things that I like, I appreciated that some people who were giving clear information about this have explicitly said, you need to stop doing this. But I'll note that it's not as repeated as what some of the other information is. Uh, and I'll also note that um, the uh, immutable personal characteristics about Dr. Tam that I would say are irrelevant to her ability to conduct her job as Chief Medical Officer for Canada have been unfairly and unduly politicized by some political actors looking, I think, to score short-term points. And so this is where I think you can go back to those uh, four motivations and just think about how those interact in di across different kind of contexts. So I, I think it is a egoist who would be like, I don't care about the short, the longer term, like corrosive consequences of me using this as a political strategy. Uh, I'm going to say that we can't trust Dr. Tam because she's Chinese, uh, which is like, it's disgusting. 
it's super racist and it's disgusting. And so where I think research needs to go, and research is kind of coming out with this. I've got colleagues who published something with the Institute for Research on Public Policy this morning looking at how um, women in general and racialized women in particular are the ones that are feeling the most stress uh, as a result of COVID. Some of this is going to be frontline essential services work. Some of this is going to be the disproportionate burden of emotional labor where women are disproportionately likely to do this. Uh, and some of this is going to be like fear of backlash. So either um, like the public eruptions that I have seen, this is anecdotal, but I this is why I think it merits more systematic study. The public eruptions that I've seen where there's been a lot of anger to the point where we wondered about whether or not somebody was going to get violent in a grocery store or something like literally this is just somebody being asked to put on hand sanitizer before they went shopping has come from white men. Just yeah. like literally, I cannot come up with an, in another example of this. And so given that context, um, you, I could go on like for another hour about all of this, but I think part of the issue is that we need to, we have an opportunity, I think, and we must start to explicitly talk about how um, these existing uh, issues about racism are, and it, racism in particular, uh, how they're being exacerbated by how people react to COVID and like people being like, don't do that. Like once, like the premier and the prime minister have been like, this is bad once they need to, this is, we have an opportunity to actually like systematically get at this. And I think we're not doing it. Okay. We have seven more questions and oh, no. we have five minutes. And four, four minutes. minutes. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> so I'll just go ahead with the next question. By Claude Peterson, your thoughts on a certain prime, uh, your thoughts on a certain premier lecturing us with scientific information instead of leaving such two people in the know. Yeah, I think I, we 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 addressed that a bit, didn't we, uh, Melanie? Yeah. Just in terms of like that, um, in order for people to believe the message, it needs to be coming from the right person, and it needs to be crystal clear. And so um, medical officers should be delivering medical information. Great. Our next question is from Laurie Schultz. Apple and Google release smartphone, smartphone tech to notify people if they are exposed to C19. Um, plus sends an update out. Your thoughts on this technology apps from a privacy or other perspective? So the, um, I'm trying to remember the organization, they were on CBC's The Sunday Edition several weeks ago talking about how privacy rights don't go away as a result of this kind of public health context. And so I would repeat that uh, clear information with a really good rationale is required for things along these lines. Uh, and also trust in the people who are asking you to give up parts of your privacy um, for the results of this stuff. So do I trust Apple and Google? I mean, I think I de facto trust them more than I think I would say, but for, I think it is one of the things that you could point to is the risk of politicizing um, something like COVID-19, uh, particularly politicizing the uh, information that's coming that's medical or technical means that people are not going to trust the request to download um contact tracing apps and that kind of oversight. I know I don't have that trust and I am not downloading any kind of apps, but I've also noticed in other contexts, um, they use coercion to achieve that. And so uh, 
as a political scientist, I would say, because that trust is potentially hard to foster and, you know, I don't necessarily trust that people would actually do it, I can see that, uh, I can see a good argument for the state to make to actually do that in the context of a public crisis. But the, the counterpart that comes along with it um, is that people have to have mechanisms to be able to push back and say no. Uh, and they have to have mechanisms to be able to take back those privacy rights uh, once a crisis is passed. Okay. Our next question comes from Leona Jacobs. Uh, representages assigned to your categories, so the percentages that you've assigned to your categories, do you think the percentages breakdown would change using a different example, i.e. fire, or in a different context? i.e. political climate, etc. Yeah, well, our, our percentages are actually based on the work of Ostrom, and um, it, she said it was about two-thirds and one-fifth and that kind of thing. So we're just drawing from her. Um, I, I see your point, though, that there may be times in which people uh, are a little bit differently motivated, and that, that could be, but I think Ostrom was using it in many different contexts, most of them environmental, um, she didn't do a lot of work on climate change, but she did do a lot of work on water management. And um, she found that these were uh, pretty consistent. So I think mm -hmm. the um, we could extrapolate this to a, a climate context and say that this is the same kind of motivations that might be behind people's responses to public policy at that level as well. I would also caution against thinking that people's motivation changes if, say, they're willing participants, but they are not persuaded or they're not being given good enough information to just get them to follow along with the policy. So their motivation might be the same. Yeah. It could be a policy failure. That's the issue. Yeah. Okay. I think we've kind of covered our next question, um, but I'll ask it anyway. Tom Muffet, Alberta Health has made some poor decisions leading to COVID-19 outbreaks in meatpacking plants and oil sands work camps. How much do you think these decisions were influenced by the provincial government? I would repeat that chief medical officers of health uh, don't actually make most of these decisions. So I would be very clear about um, where lines of decision-making authority ultimately rest. So I agree, I'm very critical of how Alberta Health Services has uh, addressed things like um, meatpacking facilities in general, not just Cargill, but uh, if we're looking at ultimate decisions, like the decision-making authority associated with Alberta Health is actually quite small. Um, I think that there are other places to rest political accountability or accountability with some of the decisions that have been made. Okay. The, oh, can I just oh, say the other yeah. thing, though, is that um, those cases about those meatpacking plants, though, um, I think that they have done potentially catastrophic damage to how some people trust the chief medical officer of health because of um, some of the information that has come with, like, say, remote plant inspections, things along those lines. And so I think... There, I don't know enough to be able to comment about pressure or not. In the context of our work, the one thing I would say is that trust is crucial and it's stuff like that that erodes trust and I'm not sure how you necessarily get that back. And that, yeah, very unfortunate. Okay, our next question is from Laura Schultz. As mentioned, the info on the reopening has been far from inconsistent and contradictory. 
that information about staying at home than the information about staying at home and the restrictions associated with that. Any suggestion on how this info can be shored up? I think Melanie had some good ideas there. I mean, um, we have to tell people what we want them to do. We want you to stay at home. So what we needed to say to the golfers right from the beginning was, your sport may not be uh, particularly problematic, but we want you to stay at home. We want you to stay at home. Like the stay at home uh, message needed to be there uh, far more uh, than the than the not don't go do this activity, don't go do this activity. We start to have to define all the activities. Um, mm -hmm. It needed to really just be right from the beginning. We need you to stay at home. And so the challenge that comes along with this is that people struggle with the whole staying at home thing. And so, but, and this is also why like the golf example really annoys me because the people who are like, we should be golfing. It's a super privileged sport, right? Like yeah. it's, it's the sort of thing where it's just like, so you can see incoming, like what's allowed and what's not like those like lines of privilege uh, with respect to gender, with respect to race and with respect to class are like fully front loaded on that. So I see the biggest challenge as like, and they've effectively said this, where they're like, we've managed to not overwhelm our ICUs, which means that like the truth is that the risk still seems to be there, which means that we want you to go outside and start spending money again, um, but the risk is still there. And so you've got the tension between uh, people being like, I've already internalized that I stay at home to uh, make sure that I'm not at risk. And so you're telling me to go and like do something else, but you're still putting me at risk. This is where, like, if I was an egoist, I'd say no. Like, uh, so what they're, what the, you can see that the part of the messaging now in terms of the opening is literally about trying to get willing participants to put themselves at risk um, because the egoists probably aren't going to do it. And I, I don't have like this raises moral questions about whether or not how appropriate this is. Like, and I don't want to necessarily get into that, but it's a messaging strategy that I don't relish and I don't want to do <laughs> being completely frank. Okay. We have a question by Beth Mundo. In psychology, we talk about people with either an internal or external locus of control. Control. Yep. The externals need consequences and rewards. Your, punisher, your punishers look like the externals. Who to justify their compliance must punish the non-compliant? Who to justify their compliance must punish the non-compliant? Your comments. I think people with an external locus of control. Uh, ooh. So I'm familiar with both of these concepts. Um, I think that actually you could find people with internal and external like loci of control across all of the groups. Um, I think people who are altruists um, could also have an external locus of control where they want to actually get the kind of accolades of doing good things for the community. Maybe. I mean, like, so I could, I could see that cutting across all of those groups. I wouldn't necessarily say that, or all of those motivations, rather. We need to talk about them as motivations, not as groups. And so I would see uh, a blend across. I can, I can see both the internal and the external locus of control across all four of those motivations. And I think what that would mean is it would potentially affect um, some of the reasons why 
somebody was exercising that motivation, but I, I don't think that like those internal versus external locus of control actually means that somebody's disproportionately focused on one um, motivation over another. I can see I can see space for both of them across all four. Okay, we um, that concludes the questions. Um, we have quite a few comments in terms of thank yous from Colleen Quintel, great presentation. Christina Miller, love this conversation. Thanks everybody for putting it together. Learned so much from everyone's questions. And then Velda Schofold. Um, thanks ladies, you gave us so much important information that helps us understand why some people believe and act the way they do. So I want to take this opportunity to thank you both for um, giving so freely of your time to SACPA and this very engaging topic. And um, I think um, maybe just if you both have something to wrap up and then we'll finish off the live stream. Uh, just, I just wanted to say, <laughs> hey, everybody, wash your hands and stay apart. <laughs> yeah. Do it for do it for the good of all of us. No. Yeah. Same sort of thing. The other thing I would do is I would take because this is an atypical context. I would take it as a moment, particularly because I know that many in the audience will be interested in and perhaps motivated by ideas of social justice. I would take a moment in this context to think about as we try to move into a context where I, if this passes or as we adjust to it, where we're actually moving into more social contact, how we address things like racism, uh, issues related to class, uh, issues related to uh, inappropriate politicization of some forms of work, how we relate to misogyny, like unpaid labor, like what we're exposing yeah. are a lot of issues that we already knew existed. And I think the worst case scenario would be exposing and exacerbating these issues and then like just letting that exacerbation rest. Um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done if we want to ameliorate uh, a number of contexts across a number of those existing um, social divides that are being clarified with heartbreaking um, results. Uh, we've got work to do. And so one of the things that I would say is that we can use the like full understanding of potential motivations and reactions to policy as a way to try to map forward how we address things like childcare, how we address things like racism, things along those lines. And the thing I would point is that it, to do this completely, you've got to take all of those motivations into account. And so, you know, you have your marching orders. <laughs> Off you go. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, we'll end the live session here. <laughs>